0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, church. That's what I'm talking about. Good morning. My name is Jenna. I'm an elder here at this church. Small group's real excited for me this morning. Love it. Um, Welcome. Welcome, welcome. We are continuing on in our Eureka series today, studying Moses. And in this series, we're turning back to the Old Testament narratives as a way for us to get to know Jesus better. Um, And the Old Testament, right, is this, this... massive, epic, true story of how God came to redeem the world through his Messiah. Messiah meaning the one who saves. And Moses, we're studying him as a typology, right? Or a person in scripture who acts as a partial type of what Jesus could be in his fullness. I always mess up that sentence. So what Jesus could be in his fullness. So when we look for Jesus in the ancient Old Testament text, we get a deeper appreciation of what God's been up to this whole time. And Moses was a prophet, right? Um, he spoke face-to-face with Yahweh, which is a little tricky. Um, he rec- he's recognized as a deliverer, a covenant mediator, a ruler. And his kind of margin- Moses' kind of larger-than-life status as a prophet was designed by God as a template from which other prophets would be measured. So Moses' story shows us characteristics of God that are imperative to understanding the fullness of the Trinity, And so I'm going to be using the word Trinity a lot, Um, and what I mean by that is the fullness of the Trinity, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, I'll use the word triune a lot too, so that's what I mean, Trinity. So here's our thesis. When we see the parallels between Moses and Jesus, we are in awe at the vastly different types of power and grace that that are used to point us into holy worship of the one true triune God. So if we only look at the New Testament Jesus, we miss out, right, on a lot of God's characteristics. We miss out on learning a unique part about his righteousness and his power and his glory. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. It's a bit of an autobiography, and he writes in it, I have approached God or my idea of God without love, without awe, even without fear. He was in my mental picture of this miracle to appear neither as savior nor as judge, but merely as a magician. And when he was done with what was required of him, I suppose he would simply, well, go away. It never crossed my mind that the tremendous contact which I solicited should have any consequence beyond restoring the status quo. So he's saying this kind of young and somewhat foolish Lewis is saying that's how I approached God in the beginning. But later in life, he goes on to say that he um, is filled with awe towards God, holy trepidation, and love. And that's our goal to continue to mature in our faith through this series, looking back at the Old Testament to grow in intimacy with the Trinity. So, so far on this path, we've studied Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and now we're to the part of this Israelite story. We come to know Moses. From last week, we'll, we'll, we'll I'll catch you up historically. Jacob had a bunch of sons. He really loved Joseph the most. His brothers were really jealous of him, so they sold him into Egypt for slavery. And God hooks Joseph up with dream interpretation, and he rises through the ranks of Egypt and becomes second in line for Pharaoh. When the famine comes, God also hooks him up to help them out with that. And when his brothers come into Egypt to say, yo, we're really hungry. We need some more food. They interact with Joseph. There's a big, huge, wonderful Uh, family relationship mended. And eventually, the Pharaoh at the time is like, yo, Joseph, just bring your whole family over to Egypt. They can all live here. So the the Hebrews Israelites move over to Egypt. They settle in this land. They can live without being bothered. And that's where we, that's where we got. And then a new Pharaoh comes into power, and the Bible says, to which Joseph meant nothing, and they become very threatened by the Israelites. They're growing in number. They're very numerous. They're getting a little strong. They got a lot of sheep, goats. I don't know if that was like the currency, right? Um, and Pharaoh uh, sees them, and he's like, these people are different. They're not really down for saying that I'm the best God in the world. Um, and so he starts to oppress them. Pharaoh decides to make them his slaves. He oppresses the Hebrew people. They were forced specifically to work in the fields and make bricks for his storehouses seven days a week without rest. And they were were treated really horribly. And Pharaoh's great plan was to kill all the firstborn sons in the Hebrew area. So he says to the midwives, like, just kill if the boy is born a a boy. If the boy is born, if a child is born a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you can save him. And the Hebrew women as usual, women are freaking baller, and they decide to make up all these, these the Hebrew midwives, they're making up all these reasons, like, oh, these Hebrew women, they just go into labor so fast, and we can't get to them, sorry, sorry about that one. So we see it's really kind of cool, not the point of this message, but we see women standing up against this oppressive regime, you know, trusting in their God and saving an entire generation of Israelites. And that's where we meet Moses, little baby Moses. There is a lot to Moses, so, 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 so much. So if you haven't read the whole story of Moses, I'm trying to pick just bits and pieces, and it's a lot, we're gonna, we're gonna get through it. But start in Exodus, read it all the way through till Moses' death. There's really boring parts in there. Read them anyways, at least once in your life. Skip them for now. See the majesty of this whole story. It's pretty stunning. So this morning, if it seems like a lot, This is what I want you to do. I want you to take that piece of paper that you have, and I want you, the paper isn't special, so if you just journal, just write it on your journal. Write the words, what is God up to, on the top. And I want you to think, what story sticks out to me the most? That's what I want you to meditate on throughout the week. See what the Lord's up to in your life. So what is God up to? That's what we're going to be curious and ask this whole time. So, Moses' mom gives birth to a baby boy, and she hides him for three months, and when she can't hide them anymore, she makes a basket, she puts it down the river where she knows Pharaoh's daughters like to go. Pharaoh's daughters find the baby, they say, oh, this must be one of these Hebrew babies. Um, and they take, actually takes it back to the Hebrew woman and says, can you wean this kid for me and I'll come back. And so it says that um, later on, Pharaoh's daughter came and adopted him. So we've got a baby born from one culture, able to stay there for a little while, goes and starts to live in a new culture. Um, And he grows up in the Egyptian court. So we don't have a lot of information about the way that Moses grew up, but we do know from his future actions that he was educated in religious, civil, um, military matters. He knows that Egypt was controlling Canaan and Syria, parts of it. So he, he knows all about this stuff. He also knows that Pharaoh is abusing the Hebrews. And at some point in his life, we don't know when, he finds out about his heritage, his his birth heritage, and he gets curious and he goes over to see how the Hebrews are doing. And when he gets there, he sees an Egyptian man beating a a Hebrew slave and he kills the Egyptian man and he hides the body. And the next day he comes back and he sees two Hebrews fighting and he's like, what the heck, isn't it bad enough that we got the Egyptians fighting? Why are we in fighting with 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 ourselves? And um, um, And the Hebrew guys are like, who made you king over us, right? What, are you going to kill us and bury us too? And Moses freaks. He thought he got away with it. Eventually, the pharaoh finds out, and he goes to kill Moses. So Moses flees. Moses flees um, that place, and he goes to a place called Midian. It's not a very easy trek. makes it seem like it is, but it isn't. So he goes to Midian. On his way, he stops at a well. Um, to get some water, and seven daughters of a a Midian priest, his name was Jethro, come along to get some water for their flock, and some shepherds come along, they start to like rebel rouse with them, and Moses helps them fight off these guys, and they're like, come back to our house, our dad wants to meet you. So he goes back to the house, and um, this is like 45 chapters I'm trying to summarize for you. He goes back to the house, and eventually he marries one of the daughters, Zipporah, Um, and he starts to take over Um, Jethro's flock. So now he got a guy who was in the Egyptian court raised and now he's shepherding this priest's flock. And one day he sees, we all know the story, a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he, again, is curious. We're going to read it together in the message. Exodus 3, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames from fire from within the bush. God calls to him from within the bush. Moses says, what is going on here? I can't believe this. Amazing. Why didn't this bush burn up? God saw that he'd stopped to look. It's funny, how long is he waiting? God called to him out from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he says, yes, I'm right here. God said, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. You're standing on holy ground. Then he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, afraid to look at God. God said, I've taken a good long look at the afflictions of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain, and now I've come down to help them, pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country, and bring them to a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush with milk and honey, The land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. I practiced it. The Israel's cry for help has come to me, and I've seen for myself how cruelly they're being treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is like, why me? What makes you think that I could ever go to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. And this will be proof that I'm the one who sent you. When you brought them out of Egypt, you will worship right here at this very mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I do go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What do I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the people I am has sent me. All right. So we've got a life in royalty. He still feels a connection with his Hebrew people. He makes rash decisions, he's a murderer, he's an outcast from his home, he's a foreigner in a new land, and he he is called on by God to lead people out of slavery against a very powerful ruler. He's not eloquent, he doesn't speak very well, people believe he had a stutter, he has pretty poor self-esteem at this point, and this is who God chooses to lead people out of slavery. What is God up to? Well, we have one clue about his character, right? When he realizes the burning bush situation is holy, he follows that traditional Asian custom of taking off his sandals and not looking at a superior in the face. To do that would have been viewed as kind of contemptuous pride. So we can see something here. He's understanding that he's in the presence of something holy. And Moses, not unlike the rest of us readers, are like, okay, that's cool, but they're not going to listen to me and I don't really know what to tell them. Which God are you? So he's a part of a culture that has kind of been rubbed off by the surrounding cultures to believe that there are different gods. Um, they're, they're worshiping different gods now. It's pretty common. So you, and we can assume that this is maybe the first time that he has ever interacted with God, our God. So he does not know the significance of him being the one true God. So that's why he's asking, well, which God am I supposed to tell them you are? And he's like, I am who I am. I am has sent me. In the Hebrew, this translates Yahweh, he who creates, who brings into being. He's saying, I'm more than the God of your ancestors. I'm way more than those household gods that you guys worship. And I am the God of all being. He is setting himself apart. And Moses is like, okay, all right, I, I get it. They're, they're not going to listen to me. And they go back and forth and back and forth. He's like, do it. And Moses is like, I can't do it. And he's like, do it. Don't do it. And finally, God's like so pissed off. He's like, fine, take Aaron, your brother, and he will speak the words. I will speak to you, and Aaron will speak them to the people. It'll be like you talking to me. He's like, great. Let's do it. Oh, also, he gives them like this magic stick that he can use to perform lots of miracles tricks or miracles, or no, they're miracles, to prove how powerful he is. Um, so he goes back to Egypt, and he gets with his brothers Aaron, and they go talk to Ramses II, who is now the current Egypt Egyptian ruler. And they say, we've talked to the God of Israel, and we need to go into the wilderness to sacrifice. We want to worship him. He's asking Pharaoh to let them go worship in their own way, practice Sabbath, etc. And it's Important here to see that God's first reasoning for freeing the Israelites is for worship. It's a big statement. It's saying, your gods aren't as important to us, and you, as the king, are not as important to us. We want to practice in a new way. And Ramses, of course, isn't having any of it, and he um, demands for them to work even harder, and the Israelites are complaining, like, why the heck did you even start this? Now our work's even worse. And in Exodus 6, we see Moses question God when it doesn't work out. Moses' accusations of God um, for not rescuing his people, and this is how God responds. Listen to the first line, watch the first line and the last line. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians were enslaving, and I remembered my covenant, Therefore, say to them, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God's like, hold my wine. (laughs) <laughs> I'm gonna show you what I could do, um, and he does, and he sends the plagues upon all of the Egyptians, and they're really, really horrible. Um, he spares the Israelites from it. One of them is like there's like a darkness felt for three days, like complete darkness, and there's a lot of back and forth and bartering that goes on with um, the Pharaoh and in Moses and Aaron. And at some point in Exodus 9, God says to to the Pharaoh, I could have by now stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I may show you my power and that my mighty hand may be proclaimed in all the earth. Still, you set yourself against me. And right after that, he's saying to him again, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt with the Egyptians and how I performed many signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. What is God up to? He's setting them apart. He's teaching them an entirely new way of living. He's going up against the many gods right here and all of polytheism. He's attacking the pride of Pharaoh, the, the, the idols of personal gain and wealth. He's using the evil of Pharaoh in um, the defiance of him to show his power. He's saying, I am better than every other god. I'm the only one who should be worshiped. And the last plague we see is the one where um, God has all the firstborn sons in Egypt die. Again, he spares the Hebrews. And finally, Pharaoh's like, get out of here. And 600,000 people, besides men and women, the Bible says, left. So they had lived in Egypt for 430 years. And the Bible says the Lord kept vigil. He watched over them. Moses, at this point, is like 80 years old. And he's leading these 600,000 plus people out of Israel, I don't know about you when you're 80. I think I want to be like maybe sitting on a porch, maybe start smoking cigarettes, because at that point, what does it matter? And maybe just making fun of youths in the neighborhood. I'm not sure. But I'm definitely not going to be leading people out of heat. Well, maybe I will. If Jesus says it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, so God goes ahead of them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night so they could travel. Pharaoh never fails to be an idiot. He takes all of his people and he starts pursuing them. The Israelites are in front of this massive waterway. They can see the, uh, the Egyptians coming after them and they're like, we're going to die. They're all complaining again. And God says, Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. Moses stretches out his hand and he holds back the winds and they all can cross on dry ground, Right. And then the pursuers start to go on the ground as well. And it says God has their carts get stuck. Moses releases his arms so the waters is a flood over them. Exodus 14, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians and saw that the Egyptians lying there on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and put their trust in him, and in Moses' His servant. What is God up to? He's saying, Let my people go so they can worship me. He's serious about this. Why free them? Why with such devastation? God's saying, This is how I deal with evil, oppression, slavery, and worship of anything that's not me. He wants to show the Hebrews his, the glory of the Lord and the Egyptians his mighty hand to remind everyone that he keeps his promises, that he is a God who protects. He is a God of rest. So they go wandering. And subsequently, they don't have much to go on except for relying on Moses' Aaron's words and God provides all these miracles for them and food, bread, quail, water. Pretty soon in, Moses says, hey, everyone, God wants to talk to us. So we need to go down to this mountain. In Exodus 19, we see on the, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The whole mountain violently trembled, and God called Moses up to the mountain. So the glory of God settles on this mountain. He calls Moses up to it. Moses goes for 40 days. And during that time, he has that incredible encounter again with God, and he gives him the Ten Commandments and all these laws. And when the Lord is finished, um, Mount Sinai, he gives them the tablets of the covenant, and it says it is scribed by the finger of God on the stone. Uh, 40 days is a long time to be missing your leader. Um, I get why they're starting to get worried. he has been gone a while. One time I was uh, going to get my hair done in Chicago with three little babies at home, and I was red and I wanted to go blonde. And if you know anything about that process, it takes a very long time, right, Ellie? Um, So at 1 a.m. I get a text from my husband that's like, is this one of those times that you said you're getting your hair cut, but you're like never gonna come home? Um, uh, Guy's really starting to sweat. So the people are starting to sweat. And um, while he's gone, they get antsy and they start to think, well, this God isn't doing it for us, so let's just make another God. So they talk Aaron into creating a golden calf and they start to worship this golden calf. And God's like, you got to get down to your people because they're going crazy down there. They have made this calf and they're saying, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And I love this relationship between Moses and God. It's so neat. Oh, listen to this interaction. God, I have seen these people, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out just to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you the descendants all the land I was promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. It's cool. Moses comes down from the mountain. He is ticked. He takes that thing, he, a golden calf, gets all the people together, does real weird things with it, read the story, and um, he reams the people out, and a whole bunch of people die. Not all of them, but a whole bunch of people die, and he asks the Lord forgiveness, and even asks the Lord to, you know, uh, for, to exchange his own life for the life of his people at this point. So they keep on living, because God lets them, and they keep going. And here we come to my favorite story of Moses. Still with me? At some point in the wandering, Moses is super confused as to what the heck is going on. We'll have a slide later about the route, but it's like you're going back and forth, and it's very pointless, it seems. Um, And it's at this time where he starts to question God, like, kind of like, is he going to pull this off? And what does he do? He asks God to show him his glory. And God's like, okay, I'll let my goodness pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. But God told him, you won't be able to see my face. I will hide you in a mountain. I will hide my hand in front of you so that you can't see my face, because anyone who sees my face can die. But I will hide you, and I will cover you, and when I have passed by, I will allow you to see my back. Cool. Cool. So Moses gets two more tablets. He goes up to the mountain again, and God does exactly what he says. He proclaims his name, the Lord, in front of him. He shows him. He hides him. And Moses comes back down after having this encounter off the mountain, and he is glowing. They're all afraid to come talk to him. He's literally glowing. Everyone's afraid to come near. And so what happens from there is he has to put a veil over his face. And whenever he goes into the presence of God to speak to him, he takes his veil off. And from then on, every time he comes back out, he puts the veil on. Their relationship is so cool. It's so cool. He's confused. He's wandering, and he's like, I need you to show me that you are legit. And what does he ask him? He asks him to see his glory, not, can you tell me the plan already? Can you make sure that this is going to work out in my favor and with the least pain possible? Or even, can you just tell me that I'm still worthy of this task? No, I need to grow in intimacy with you. The glory of God is the manifestation of his presence. He's saying, I need to be closer to you. And God's like, all right, okay. I'm pleased with you and I know your motives are pure. And Moses is completely changed from that point on in the presence of God. And when people saw Moses, they saw less of Moses and they saw more of the glory of God. Are we ever at a place long enough that we need to say, man, God, I need you to show me who you are but do we ask for a blessing instead of being in the presence of Lord long enough that we glow and people notice when we come out of it? From here, God gives the people ways that he wants them to live and leads them into seemingly impossible situations to get them to the promised land. And he clearly states that I'm doing all this and giving you all these things to keep you from sinning. God says, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that your fear of God may be with you to keep you from sinning. What's God up to? He's, he's, the test is not meant to be mean. It's a test to get rid of all the things that you don't need. He knows that sinning brings you farther away from relationship and intimacy with himself. So these aren't unnecessary boundaries for your life, you, me, Israelites. They're purposeful. A lot of spit, that one. They're purposeful, and they're wrapped up in the initial reason that he created us to be in relationship with him. So here's a slide showing the route they took. You can see it's It's like, not even very far to go. He just kind of wandered. Um, They had a lot to learn. Um, And they finally see that they reached the land the Lord had promised for them. And Moses proclaims, I am now 120 years old. I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord, your God himself will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you will take possessions of their land. Joshua will cross over ahead of you as the Lord said, and the Lord will do with them what he did at Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And you're like, what? What? Moses can't go? Do you see what he had to deal with for 40 years? This is insane. Right? Do you not see what he had to put up with? So I guess what happened, we're not going to go over the whole story. It happened a while back. You know, there's this, people are complaining they don't have any water. God says, Moses, speak to the rock and bring some water. Moses instead, out of anger, slashes the rock with his magic stick and water appears. Um, And it's a moment where God really wanted the glory to come from himself and not Moses. And he says that, Moses, you, you broke faith with me. So, he says you can't get in because of that. So it seems super devastating. I don't know do you, it seems super devastating to me. I've done way worse than slash a rock with my magic stick. But we see the promised land as the end goal. And we don't really get an account of Moses's reaction. We, God tells him he's not going to get in. And then the next verse, he's blessing all the tribes. And the next one, he's like, yo guys, I'm not going to go with you. Joshua's going to take you. God's going to go ahead have you. Everything's going to be okay. He seems pretty content for a guy who puts up a for fuss about all sorts of other things. It's if Matt, Moses knew that getting into the promised land was not the end goal, but being in relationship with God was the goal the whole time. And in Deuteronomy, it tells us that God took Moses on top of the mountain. He shows him this beautiful land, and then he dies, and God buries him. And he makes the point to say that he had a lot of life in him, Well, yeah, maybe a little life. He was 120, and his eyes were not weak, and his strength was not gone. And the story ends with this word in Deuteronomy 34. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his officials, to the whole land, for no one ever shown the, has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. What is God up to? Why does he use Moses? Numbers 12 tells us that Moses was the most hum- humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. And at one point in the story, the Israelites are like complaining about Moses, and this is what God says. <laughs> when there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but not this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord when why are you why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses dang God's like shut my age up what a relationship so I just want to stop here I want to breathe I want to take in the majesty of all of this story of what God has done through Moses almost be a little jealous of their relationship the way that God used him to establish relationship and I think it's It's helpful to be in awe at the story of Moses, to kind of regain some of the awe for whatever reason that we have stopped feeling towards Jesus. So God uses Moses to show the world what he's like, to set up a new way of living to set them apart and why he's to be worshiped only. And if we study Moses as a typology or a type of Jesus and we get to see there's a lot of similarities between Jesus and Moses. Some are funny, some are cool, some are weird, some are interesting. Right, both mothers have to flee Egypt, an evil ruler who's trying to kill the babies. Both are saved by women. Round four to Eve, Jonathan? I don't know, round three, round four? Um, Women, are great. Um, It's because you are one. All right, both sent to Egypt to preserve their lives. There were long periods of silence from childhood to adulthood in scripture. Both saved women at the well, tricky. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting with God up in the mount, and Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights right in the desert fighting off the devil before starting his ministry. But Moses was just a glimpse of what God had in store for humanity. And Hebrews 3 lays it out for us. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone and God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to the confidence and the hope in which we glory. And that's the mic drop, right? Moses is like, uh, God's like, Moses, have you met him? He's freaking legit, but have you met Jesus? He is the fulfillment of all that Moses spoke. In Deuteronomy, Moses says that the Lord says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among my brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command them. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him into account. Here's a cool slide. I did not vet the whole slide, so don't, don't, you know, come at me. But I think it's cool to see. It's a little blurry. But this prophets right here, right? Isaiah through Malachi. And then there's this 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament where God is silent. So prophets were people inspired by God to speak the words of God to the people, for Israel to look out for the Messiah, always pointing towards the Messiah. And after Moses, there are a few other prophets. It ends in the book of Malachi. And the inspired prophet seeps to speak. And God allows 400 years to pass where he doesn't speak through prophets. What is he up to in this 400 years? Well, I have no idea. But he sure does allow a long time for the teachings to spread throughout the world. He also gets to a different climate Um a new scenery in history, politically, etc., And we pick up again in the New Testament, the pinnacle of all that the Israelites have been waiting for is born. And John the Baptist kind of rounds out the Old Testament prophecies, proclaiming that Jesus is born. So prophets spoke the words of God to the people of God to prepare, prepare them for the Messiah. And Jesus was that prophet that Deuteronomy 18 was talking about, but he wasn't just another prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment, you can get rid of that, of all that God is up to all along. And Jesus's words are the full and final revelation from God. We no longer need a mediator. Jesus gives us direct access to his words in himself. And I love that the New Testament um, so clearly affirms this, right? So Jesus during his ministry, he's about to be he's about to go into the part of his ministry where he's going to die and he takes James, John, oh, I always mess it up. You know, the three big ones. Peter, Peter, J- Peter. Peter, James, and John up to a mountain and he's like, "Can you guys just pray for me? I'm just going to go over here and do something." Well, they 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 fall asleep, right? And they wake up. They see Jesus with Elijah and Moses just talking. And what? Remember, right? We call this the transfiguration. And Jesus, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light. Jesus up until this point had to veil his glory, right? His um, physical glory, just like Moses did. And for a short moment, he allows this glory to be visible. So Moses is here representing the law. Elijah is here representing the prophets. And he allows the disciples to even see them submitting to him as the Messiah, as the full revelation of God. He brings the Old Testament and the New Testament story into completion. The Israelites of this day, they knew these stories of Moses and they were waiting for this. God weaved this wonderful story and similarities between the two to help them understand and believe that he was the Messiah. And we see the people in the New Testament working this out. So if you're in a period of your life where you're reconstructing your faith, this is something to really take note to. Acts 17, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. I don't know why I'd say that. That's what of I mean. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Acts eighteen, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. the Old testament authors used the New Testament authors used the Old Testament to explain Jesus and used Jesus to explain the Old Testament and they illuminated each other it 's clever by God, but it 's also very kind, so the final are in Probably the most important similarity is that Moses' mission was to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus' mission was to bring complete redemption of all mankind from slavery and sin. So what does this mean for us today? There seems to be like 400 messages that we can learn from this. So again, stick with something that's sticking out to you and take it. But... um, this is what I saw. Studying Moses helps us see the vast expanse of our God's character for one major purpose, to understand is the only one worthy of worship and full devotion. And the rest, uh, the rest of the stuff comes out of that, right? Full devotion first, right living, identity, etc. And you're like, really cool, Jenna, what the heck does that actually mean for me? Um, well, I'm glad you asked. Because a lot, actually. So, what we see here is that God leaves a lot of time and space between actions and even speaking. 400 years, 430 years passed between the time of Jacob and Joseph, where the Israelites were in Egypt. And then Moses comes along. Moses and them, they wander for 40 years. And then another 400 years of silence. He prepares, he watches, he protects. And if the main goal of you is to see God do something radical in your life or whatever it is, fill in the blank, change this in my life by the hand of God, and that's your main goal, then we have missed out on relationship with him the whole time. I do believe the Holy Spirit is constantly speaking to us, and we we aren't always in a place to to hear it, so I'm not saying that God doesn't talk um, or has periods of silence, but I do think he's silent on some issues for specific purposes, and I know I've experienced those seasons. And something that really struck me was um, as I was studying... The fact that there seems to be a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament, specifically when it comes to grace and power. Does anyone else see that? I tend to see God as like this harsh, powerful, jealous, and Jesus as like kind, meek, and graceful. And these characteristics seem to be at odd with each other. And I have this kind of fragmented view of the Trinity, and that affects how I approach God. God in the story of Moses is mighty, he's fierce, he's righteous, he's jealous, he's merciful, he's full of grace, he's sacrificial and completely glorious. Specifically, God's grace is on full display. And I think I get stuck only thinking that grace is an att- an attributed to Jesus. But God delivering Israel from Egypt was an act of grace, providing food and shelter and victory against enemies. And the New Testament, that focuses on grace even more because it describes the complete plan of salvation in Christ we get to see the full view of God's character culminated in the form of Jesus. And God uses power to set his people apart, to free them from the Israelites in idolatry, to establish a new covenant and protect them physically through war in the Old Testament. But he also uses great power in the New Testament, self-control and miracles and freeing people from sin, casting it out. And the ultimate power is laying down his life, right, for us. And I love this full view of the Trinity. All my life I've learned he's omnipotent, but here in this story, I see he's all powerful. Power to shake a mountain, to come down like fire, to destroy enemies, but also the power to resist the devil over and over, to fight demons, to free people of them, to defeat the devil once and for all on the cross. He establishes a different kind of power in the New Testament through Jesus, one that's born out of humility. And the Israelites already knew this Old Testament power, powerful side of the Trinity, and now they needed to experience the other in Jesus, and so do we. And just like the C.S. Lewis text that we talked about earlier, he's bigger than our minds will know or ever comprehend, and realizing that he's that great and that mighty and that powerful seats us under our rightful place where we should be underneath his rule. And the full view helps us in relating to the Trinity, So do we need to be reminded this morning of God's power? Are we blown away by this beautiful plan that starts with our rebellion and ends with our justification through grace? Are we in awe? Are we putting ourselves in a position of awe? Or are we so in control of everything that goes on in our lives that we have no room for God to sweep us off our feet? No room for God to surprise us. Why wander in the desert for 40 days, 40 years, 40 days? Well, it sure strips them of all control, right? And anything that they used to rely on. Are you in a wandering place or have you been in a wandering place? And instead of being curious the whole time, what is God up to? We're mad at him for not moving fast enough or changing the circumstances to demand our desire for a better life. Or maybe we blame him for not listening to us or caring enough to shift things our way so that life is easier and better. So easily we shift into these people who use God only to get what, we, what he can do for us out of it. And maybe he's leading you or has led you through a big season so we can learn to rely on him more and alone for our source of life instead of these other lesser gods. So I know they can be really good things, but they're not as good as God. And we can surely ask God for better things, right? I mean, there was the promised land in, in, in all. He wants a better life for us, but make no mistake, the point isn't the land. The point is how we are changed along the way of being in relationship with Christ. Are we sitting in that relationship long enough that we are glowing when we come out and people get to see us be changed because we experience that love? Or maybe you're like me and you need to hear God believing, believe God saying this over you. I am the God of your father, Jenna, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I've taken a good long look at the afflictions of you, Kristen, Ellie, John. I've heard your cries for deliverance from the sin that enslaves you. I know all about your pain. I send Jesus so that you're free of it and now you have the Trinity interceding on your behalf to help, to pry you loose from the grip of this world, these idols, this sin, to bring you out of this enslaved state and I aim to bring you to a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush with milk and honey. Your cry, Katie, Steve, Jackie, has come to me for help. And I've seen for myself how cruelly being in bondage to the sin is treating you. And it's time for you to go all in with Jesus and speak out against the devil and let you be free from the Egypt that you're in. Guys, God's always fighting on your behalf. He's always fighting to defeat lesser gods in your life. What do you need to be delivered from? What do I need to be delivered from? What gods or sin do we need to put to death? And sometimes it's a one and done thing. Sometimes it's not. I know for me, I'm constantly battling is if what I do good enough, right? I was a kid born in the late 80s and 90s and there was this Christian subculture and this false truth that anything you did for the Lord had to be huge, right? You had to be a missionary. I don't know if anyone else grew up with this, Methodist Church, but um, you have to be a missionary or you have to adopt 100 children or be saved with these people in a huge conference. Like, and anything less than that, wasn't good enough for God. That's how I grew up. And that, so you can imagine, right now I'm a mom of three kids. I do more laundry all day than anything else in my life. I wash dishes all day. I go to work. I've lived in Central Florida my whole life, not in Africa as a doctor. Um, and it is a constant reminder every day to my broken soul that I have not lived up to my potential. That's, that's the lie. Sure, I work as an NP for people living with HIV who don't have insurance, but that's not big enough. Spoiler alert, it's never, ever, ever going to be big enough. And that's what I'm slowly learning. All my life, I realized that my, lo- my soul can never settle, that I was okay with God. Sorry, it's super fresh in me because it didn't look like all of that. And over the last three years, I realized that I can't even ever rest because rest equals laziness and laziness equals not using my talent for the kingdom of God where I'm supposed to be doing all these magical things. And it's taken 40 years, but God's like, Jenna, I want you to be free of that Egypt that you are in. There is nothing you can do that would make me love you even more. You don't need to do that to get my approval. You already have it. I already love you, and I'm already proud of you. When you do the dishes, when you fold the laundry, you are in mine, and I am part of you, and I deeply want to be free from that bondage. So what are you in bondage to that he wants you to be free of? We're going to continue in worship. But I want you to write it down, to share with a friend. Have your small group pray over that thing in your life. Maybe it is lifelong. Maybe it's just, a, just something that you need gone for once and for all. But keep talking about it and keep being curious. What is the Lord up to? Remember to check with yourself instead of accusing God of not doing things in your life? What is he up to that he could be doing in me? Let's pray. Sorry. Took all her stuff here. Here's your light. Jesus, man, what a story that is meant to bring us closer to your heart. So can you teach us different ways that this will work, that you can flesh this out in our lives. It's a lot, a lot of different ways that you can use it. So I pray right here, right now, that in worship, you would give us that vision, that story to remember. And we would say, what are you doing with us? What are you up to in my life? What are you teaching me? I want to lay down all of these things that I think I deserve or want, even if they're good, but I want you more. Would you teach us that? Thank you, Jesus. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at citybeautifulch. We hope you join us again soon.